Hey, everyone, Tom Salami here. This is the MedTech Talk podcast. Thanks for joining us. We're still working through the content from the MedTech conference, but we'll be getting you that uh, very soon. But I'm very happy that we have this interview I did with John Pedersen from Augmentix uh, a few weeks prior to the MedTech conference. John's uh, leading a real exciting company in a real exciting space, the urology space. We've talked about Dave Emerson. We've talked about Bob Paulson. Augmentix is another company in this area that's uh, really created a unique way to uh, help treat those who have uh, who are undergoing treatment for prostate cancer. It's a, a cool little space or device. John will talk about more talk about it more in the podcast. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. He also came to Augmentix, uh, as many people do, through a larger company. And he has advice for those who, uh, who are at larger companies and are uh, considering a jump to a startup. So I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation with John Patterson of Augmentix. And uh, do keep on the lookout. We've got uh, a lot of great information and insights coming out from the MedTech conference. John Patterson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to talk about the uh, Augmentic story. We're actually seeing a, a lot of uh, a lot of activity in the, in the prostate front in MedTech uh, between IPOs or, or financings and acquisitions. So uh, it's a great space to... Uh, to be in. That's a very interesting time in urology. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, let's, I, I usually start with a question about uh, someone's uh, career beginnings, but I'm curious, uh, do you have any thoughts as to what's driving this, uh, all this activity of late? Is it just, it's been a long time building or is, has there been a catalyst, a catalyst that I've missed? I, I don't think there's a catalyst particularly. I think it's been a long time building and mm-hmm. a little bit of, you know, luck and, and timing. You know, you've got, uh, uh, Neotrack that's been at it for several years, uh, Nextera that's been at it for several years. Um, I think it's more timing than anything else. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, it's it's good timing to have for sure. It's nice to see great activity in medtech. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Augmentics and its uh, its origins. Uh, how did the uh, how did the company get started, and what was, where did its technology come from? Yeah, so Augmentics was founded in 2008. Uh, it was created. Um, by Amar Zawani and Fred Kushravi. They have a holding company called Incept, mm-hmm. and Incept is where all the patents live, and uh, Incept has founded several other companies. Uh, they uh, founded Confluent Surgical, sure. uh, which was sold to Covidian. They founded Access Closure, which was uh, sold to Cardinal Healthcare, and they founded Ocular Therapeutics, which is a public company. Uh, Augmentix was the fourth company uh, founded by these two founders and uh, and Incept. And really, uh, each of these companies were trying to address a different problem uh, in healthcare. And uh, Augmentix's uh, goal is to solve a fundamental problem in cancer care. And uh, there are really two problems, uh, you know, two fundamental problems uh, in cancer. 14 million people worldwide are diagnosed with cancer every year and 8 million wind up dying. Uh, you know, cancer is one of the, is the second largest uh, leading cause of death uh, in the world behind cardiovascular disease. So it's a real, you know, it's a real societal problem. And in addressing cancer, there are really two issues. Uh, one is, uh, can we diagnose cancer in time to do something about it? Uh, and the second problem is, uh, if we've diagnosed cancer in time to treat it, uh, you know, before it's metastasized, how do you kill the cancer and not harm the patient? And it's the second problem uh, that Augmentix addresses. Was this the uh, 
the original intent of the company when it started out? Is it, is it still developing the same tool that it had started out with 2008? Or have there been a few uh, iterations? Well, uh Really, since its founding, the, the, the primary, the first target was prostate cancer. So, so anytime you have a solid tumor mm-hmm. throughout the body, uh, you have this issue of how do you, how does a radiation oncologist fully dose the tumor with radiation and not hurt surrounding healthy tissues? Um, so when the company was founded, um, there was some initial feasibility work done with prostate cancer, and uh, it was... Um, uh, a disease that our technology, you know, could treat. The technology, by the way, is a polymer that flows into the body as a liquid, it becomes a solid in the body, uh, and it creates the space between the tumor and the adjacent healthy tissue. Uh, but then over time, the body absorbs that polymer and it is completely uh, cleared mm-hmm. by the body, so there's no need to remove remove the tumor, uh, remove the, the, uh, the space. So... Uh, yeah, prostate cancer was the initial target from the from really from the beginning. But uh, we are uh, now working after we've proven uh, the clinical and commercial viability of prostate cancer. We're working on other targets. So we are currently in the process of developing uh, new spacing products for other tumors like um, pancreatic cancer and cervical cancer and head and neck cancer. So at what stage are those other projects and will they require the same sort of clinical rigor that you've needed in prostate or do you get sort of a head start because you've, you've done a lot of work in the body already? Yeah, that's a great question. And we're in the process of discussing mm-hmm. that with the FDA. Um, I, I think every new spacing indication uh, is going to require uh, clinical data. Um, now, I think the question becomes whether it's a prospective uh, clinical trial or whether um, centers that are using our technology uh, to space other uh, tumors, whether we can package that data, that kind of retrospective data, and submit that to the FDA. Uh, the um, pan- pancreatic cancer is the work uh, is the is tumor that we've done the most work on, and I believe that will be a prospective clinical trial, just like. Um, we had to do uh, for for prostate. But in terms of, of proving the material is safe in the body and such, I, I'm guessing that was that that was done, and you don't need to do that every single time. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, when Augmentix was founded, uh, and when we initially approached uh, approached the FDA for approval of Spaceor, Spaceor is the name of the product um, that we've developed for prostate cancer. There was also there was already a kind of a long uh, legacy of. Uh, products based on the same polymer. This polymer is called polyethylene glycol hydrogel or PEG hydrogel. Um, you know, because of these other companies that I mentioned, um, Confluent Surgical and Access Healthcare and Ocular, the FDA has had a lot of experience working with PEG hydrogel, and they understand, uh, you know, the remarkable safety profile of this material. So that that was a benefit certainly to us when we got started with Spaceor, and um, it'll continue to be a benefit as we develop uh, spacing products for these other targets, pancreatic cancer and gynecologic cancer, et cetera. Is there a unique challenge to to selling a, a, a spacing device uh, in into hospitals these days? Are, are you targeting the same specialists that you would with with other, um, in this case, prostate uh, oriented devices? Are you do you have a different audience that you're trying to, to speak to when you're 
making the case for space or who's your who's your target yeah it's a it's a little bit unique in that um the the cancer center the radiation oncologist in the cancer center is always a uh, important party in the decision uh, on whether or not to adopt space or for their prostate cancer patients uh, once the cancer center has made that determination that uh, they believe that space or has a role in helping them safely treat uh, their patients then the question comes up on who is the who is best suited uh, at that cancer center to uh, implant the space or material. And sometimes the answer to that question is, again, the radiation oncologist. Um, but often, uh, given the, um, the technique required to play space or, uh, it, it's the urologist, either in that cancer center or in a nearby office environment. What you have to remember about space or is it's implanted uh, into the body uh, with a uh, ultrasound, a transrectal ultrasound guided needle procedure. Uh, so that's a technique that some radiation oncologists have. Uh, some, about 10% of radiation oncologists have been trained in brachytherapy. And brachytherapy is, you know, essentially a uh, ultrasound guided needle procedure. Um, in fact, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a lot more difficult procedure than placing space or. But the other 90% of radiation oncologists don't have that skill set. And uh, urologists do. Um, you know, urologists uh, do prostate biopsy. Uh, urologists place the neutral markers in the prostate. Um, urologists are very good at uh, ultrasound-guided needle procedures uh, like ours. So uh, once our reimbursement code kicked in in January, um, we're seeing um, a significant shift of implanters to, uh, to the urology community. Interesting. And how does the... Uh... How does that set with the uh, the radiation oncologist or the, the the oncologist community? Is that something that they welcome the help in in this regard? Yeah, I would say the radiation oncologists are really open to, to partnering with partnering with the urologist. You got to remember that the urologist really owns the prostate cancer patient, so uh, the radiation oncologist, you know, at the end of the day, is dependent on uh, urologists in their community to refer. Uh, patients to them for radiation therapy. So, uh, you know, it's a partnership that works. It works. It's uh, been established and it works pretty well. We'll take a quick break from this conversation with John Pedersen to uh, tell you that, again, we've got content coming out from the MedTech conference, a lot of great interviews, great panel discussions. We'll have excerpts. We'll have entire presentations for you. If you want to uh, find out how to access those, you should uh, be on our MedTech talk email list. So go to healthogy.com. That's the word health, followed by letters egy.com. Healthogy is the company that produces this podcast and the MedTech Conference. Go there, look for the uh, MedTech Conference, and you can find uh, the link to sign up for the MedTech Talk newsletter. We'll make sure you uh, learn all about uh, our distribution channel for the conference content. Now let's get back into this conversation. You've got... uh the news of this this year was the the fact that you I believe the Medicare is reimbursing the things you you mentioned this you mentioned this earlier and you also have some coverage from from Aetna. Uh Is it its is there its own code that this this specific device is uh, reimbursed for, or is is it part of a larger code for the entire procedure? How does the reimbursement work? Yeah, great question. So we had to go out and establish a brand new Category One CPT code. Okay. Um, uh, this is, you know, getting a code is, 
you know, it's a real effort. It's a two-year process, essentially, working with the societies and working with the AMA. Um, and it took us two years, and that code went into effect uh, in January of this year. Once the code, uh, you know, goes into effect, you then have to work on getting uh, both Medicare and private insurers to, to cover that code. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that process has gone really well for us. Um, you know, rough rule of thumb, it's a two-year process to get, uh, to get the code and have it in place. And then it's another two-year process after that to, to get insurers to cover that code. Um, and we've been really fortunate uh, in that, uh, as of today, we have uh, six of the seven Medicare uh, administrators, these uh, MACs, uh, covering our code. And we have a number of private insurers as well. Mm-hmm. We're up to about 87,000 covered lives. Uh, sorry, 87 million covered lives, uh, which is about 60% uh, uh, of prostate cancer patients. So there are 298 million you know, insured covered lives in the United States. So we have about 30% uh, on a total covered life, lives basis, but because we are, uh, we have so many Medicare contractors covering the procedure, it's uh, uh, it's uh, o- over 60% of, um, of prostate cancer patients have access to our technology now. That's great. I think I would think Medicare would be pretty much the ball game that that would give you access to <clears throat> to most of the patients. Yeah, it's about our payer mix is about 70% Medicare. Okay, uh, and then we have the Medicaid patients, and then we've got uh, men who, uh, you know, are younger uh, and are covered through private insurance. So where are you then? I mean, this is a, an integral time or critical time for the company you're, you're rolling out, and an exciting time too, uh, critical in a positive way. Where are you with uh, with your financing? Let's let's rewind a little bit. Tell us who some of your investors are, uh, including I know you have one at least one corporate investor, and uh, what are your uh, capital needs going forward? Yeah, so uh, it, it is very exciting time for us at Augmentix. We're, um, you know, the commercial uptake of our technology has been very rapid. And so I think the bottom line is uh, uh, I don't think we're going to require any additional financing. Great. Um, you know, the equity uh, participants in the company uh, are, uh, you know, one strategic variant has put money into the company. Uh, and then we have, you know, four principal venture capital uh, capitalist. That's uh, Ascension Health, uh, Excel Star, um, Catalyst, uh, Health Ventures, and the Sparta Group. Uh, you know, we raised the last round that we raised was in 2016. We raised a six million dollar Series E, um, and then after that, we established a uh, bank financing facility uh, with MidCap. Uh, and between the Series E and the bank. Uh, facility, I think we're fully capitalized. Um, you know, we're in the envious position that we could be cash flow positive, but we want it right now. Uh, but we are, you know, continuing to, you know, reinvest uh, into the growth of the business. You know, principally, we're reinvesting and building our um, U.S. and international sales force. Uh, and we're also investing in these um, new indications that I mentioned earlier. And what is the uh, relationship with with Varian? They're they're an investor, but are there any other uh, connections there? Either distribution or uh, options to buy someday. Anything else? Part of that uh, part of that financing deal? Uh, no. So the Varian investment right now is uh, a pure uh, financial investment. They have uh, a board observation uh, right, 
but there's no other strategic uh, involvement um, distribution or otherwise uh, between Varian and Augmentix. Terrific. Well, let's uh, let's talk a bit about your, yourself. You you came uh, to to Augmentix uh, just a, a few years ago. Like, well, I guess it's four years now. December four two thousand fourteen. Uh, what was it about this company that uh, that uh, attracted you? Yeah. So uh, Amar Zawani, who's one of the uh, founders of Incept, was the CEO of um, Augmentix at the time. He was also the CEO of Ocular Therapeutics, and it was at this time that Amar was taking. Ocular Therapeutics Public. So, as you can imagine, being CEO of a public uh, a company going through an, an IPO and also another company was um, uh, that was uh, an awful lot of responsibility. <laughs> For so, sure. Uh, uh, you know, Amar was looking for someone uh, to come in and to um, take Augmentix from a, a pre-commercial company. Uh, we had submitted for approval. Um, uh, to market to the FDA in 2014, and, and we were awaiting uh, the clearance. Uh, and so he was looking for someone to come in to build the commercial team, uh, launch Space Store, and transition Augmentix you know, to a commercial company. And uh, so he knew that I was looking, after a 15-year career at Boston Scientific, um, I was looking to become CEO of a smaller company. And we had done some – he had approached me uh, – while I was at Boston Scientific about some of the other things he was working on. So we had a relationship um, prior to this time. And at first, I, you know, I wasn't sure. I, um, you know, like all these opportunities, you have to do a little uh, investment and due diligence. And um, I actually took three months uh, of examining uh, this opportunity, um, talking to physicians, looking at the clinical data, uh, examining the intellectual property portfolio uh, before I took the role. And, um, you know, I think one thing that really, two things really struck me uh, as I evaluated this opportunity. Uh, One thing was the track record that Amar and Fred have, uh, you know, between uh, all these companies that I mentioned. Um, So I felt confident about their ability to, you know, uh, identify a great um, technology. Uh, but the other thing was just talking to the clinicians. Um, this idea of spacing uh, a, a tumor and healthy tissue ne- next door is so intuitive to these physicians. Uh, the radiation oncologists that I talked talk to, you know, they were like, gosh, if we, we deal in millimeters, you know. Mm-hmm. If, if we could create a, or find a millimeter or two of space between a tumor and, you know, next door tissue, you know, that's really big for us. And so the fact that the space or material can create a, almost a centimeter and a half of space between the prostate and the rectum, th- these guys uh, thought that was a country mile. And so, um, so it was really the intuitive nature of uh, the, the concept sure. and the value they, they think it brings to their patients um, that really sold me on the opportunity. Uh, just to shift to the to space war for a second, how long does the the material last? Is it is it through the duration of the uh, of the treatment usually, or does it require multiple uh, multiple applications? Yeah, so the peg hydrogel can be formulated to last in the body, um, you know, for uh, you know, uh, for a short duration or a long duration. The space war material uh, was formulated to last for three months. Uh, and the reason for that is the current standard of care for prostate cancer radiation therapy 
uh, is one little tiny dose of radiation uh, every day for two and a half months. Mm-hmm. So you want the, the polymer to, to um, create that space between the prostate and the rectum you know, during that two and a half month treatment window. Uh, and then this formulation of the PEG hydrogel, uh, the space or formulation, dissolves then rapidly between month three and month six uh, and is um, cleared through the kidneys by month six. And I imagine that the size of the, the, the amount of material used is small enough that the patient doesn't feel any discomfort or anything different. Yeah, in our clinical trial, uh, it was interesting. Uh, I, I wasn't there during this period, but what I'm told is that we had patients, uh, some patients in the treatment arm that, that felt a little fullness, um, you know, down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, and then again, we had some patients in the control arm who felt the same yeah. fullness. So <laughs> it's hard to tell. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, patients are having a needle injected into their perineum, and I think that creates a little swelling uh, that's transient, you know, within, uh, and is gone within a couple of days. That's a great point. So you were at Boston Scientific. You were the president of urology and women's health uh, for for Seton and senior vice president at Boston Scientific. Was was uh, Augmentic something that was on your radar? Had you heard about this technology um, prior to being contacted? Well, that's an interesting thing. I, I really, no, it was not on my radar screen. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I left Boston Scientific in 2012, uh, and I worked in the private uh, equity business for two years. I was on the board of two, uh, two companies, one in the women's health uh, area and one in uh, the immunotherapy area. Um, and so, no, interestingly enough, it mm-hmm. wasn't really on my radar screen while I was at Boston Scientific. But I think Amar kind of sought me out, knowing my background in urology, knowing how helpful that would be as um, you know as we launched this product. Interesting. And um, did you? Well, what uh, what led you to leave Boston Scientific and to to work in the private private equity space for a bit? Yeah, I mean, I had been with Boston Scientific for 15 years, uh, and I'd really had two two jobs as an adult. You know, before <laughs> uh, before Boston Scientific, I was with McKinsey and Company for five years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I really felt like I wanted to um, do something a little bit more entrepreneurial. And I wanted, uh, you know, instead of being a division president in a big company, I wanted to, you know, see what it was like to be CEO in a, in a smaller company. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. Any uh, advice to folks who are in the larger companies? Uh, I mean, looking at your uh, your LinkedIn profile, I'm not doing any kind of uh, deep due diligence on you, but you were... Uh, director of new business development. You worked in neurovascular, urology, gynecology, peripheral, and then back to urology and women's health. Uh, did you have um, a path laid out that you followed, or did you sort of leap to opportunities as they arose? Yeah, I would love to tell you that my uh, career was highly engineered to get me <laughs> to the place where I am today, but <laughs> but that would not be truthful. Uh, you know, as in every you know, for most people, it's sure. a combination of uh, aspiration and. and uh, luck and um, uh, and a little bit of randomness, and I would say that's played a role in my own career. Uh, what I would say to, to people in big companies is um, is it can be awfully comfortable uh, to be in a big company, uh, especially if you've worked there for you know five or ten years or more. Um, and uh, I, I would just caution people to, to not get too comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a whole wide world of exciting things going on, uh, you know, that are more entrepreneurial, that are really exciting to be a part of. And I know for me, I'm really glad I made that transition. I bet. 
And, and just final question about about that transition, uh, moving into the CEO role of a, of a really exciting company. I wonder what uh, you know, what lessons have you learned? Uh, what 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 surprised you about being a CEO that perhaps challenges you weren't anticipating? And what did you do to become a? What have you done to become a, a better CEO? If you have any sort of tips or books or anything you've done to kind of to uh, to smooth the way. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I guess there, uh, the, the fundamental thing I've learned about uh, in this transition from big company to small company, uh, you know, is the focus on cash flow. Um, that's really what it's all about. Mm-hmm. And, and managing uh, your investments and managing your cash wisely. Uh, you know, of course you do that in a big company, but, um, you know, you have the balance sheet of a large company behind you. Uh, in the small company environment, you know, every nickel counts. So uh, so you're just a lot more careful um, and thoughtful uh, about your spending. Um, you know, uh, uh, I, there was no book or or podcast, sorry. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> there is uh, now, I John. Found. Yeah, there is now. Exactly. There is now. <laughs> I wish I was there for you. Really helpful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do too. Uh, you know, I, I, I think as always in my career, um, you know, y- you listen to others who've, um, you know, been through uh, what, what you're about to go through. I've uh, reached out to a number of people that, um, y- you know, were, were running small, smaller companies, uh, and I sought their advice uh, at a number of places along the road uh, as I became up to speed as CEO of Augmentix. So just you know, listening to others carefully about their experiences and what's worked for them and, and not worked for them is really what's helped me the most. Um, of course, you know, Amar and Fred are two great um, founders to have on the board, and they're a, a wealth, a very uh, they have a wealth of, of information and experience um, uh, to lend a hand as well. Absolutely. I know we know Amar well from our, our ophthalmology events and podcasts. So uh, it's amazing how uh, the, the companies those that, that pair has created. It's just outstanding. Terrific. Yeah. Well, this has been very uh, enjoyable and very informative. Thanks for uh, taking the time to tell us about Augmentix. All right, Tom. My pleasure. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us, MedTech Talk podcast listeners. It's great to have you here. Please do subscribe to the podcast. That'd be a great help. More important, tell your friends. Let them know what we're doing here. And uh, if you think they'll enjoy it, tell them so. Also, you can reach out to me. I am at MedTechTom. That is me on Twitter. You can also email me, Tom at HealthAG.com. I do enjoy hearing from uh, listeners and uh, in the case of uh, folks at the MedTech Conference, meeting them as well. So it's, uh, it's great to have this opportunity to talk to you. And uh, I would uh, love to have the opportunity to talk with you. So please do reach out. That's it. Tune in next week. We'll have another great tale of innovation on the MedTech Talk podcast.